Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Tim Mason. Tim spent 30 years at Tesco being the deputy CEO, shifting the company towards customer centricity and growing rapidly. He then became the CEO of Tesco's US business, which scaled from zero to one billion in under three years before shutting down. Tim also dabbled in private equity. He sits on a couple of boards, including Gusto, and he's the CEO of loyalty tech company Eagle Eye. In this episode, Tim and I talk about how he helped shift Tesco from competition to customer obsession, what that actually means, and we will speak about the importance of culture and what makes leaders great. Tim, before we talk about your massive leadership experience and lessons, uh, and obviously, you know, I want to hear about pioneering online grocery and launching uh, a totally new business in the US. But first, I want to hear where you grew up and how growing up was like. I don't normally talk about things like this, Timo. <laughs> I think that um, one of the decisions that you make in life, I think, is to, is whether you know, your, your private persona and your professional persona. I worked for a guy, Terry Leahy, who was completely clear that in his mind, the hero was the company. He was, I mean, he's naturally a very shy and self-effacing guy, but he was absolutely determined. His predecessor was, was quite a, a, a well-known uh, personality. And this was in an era where, you know, Richard Branson was deemed to be able to do no wrong. But I think that Terry felt that, you know, if it was good for you, it was good for you, but, but that it, it, it didn't sort of fit for him. So frankly, as being, you know, one of his team, or, or, or even some people might say at times his number two, uh, it wasn't really appropriate for me to be a big corporate personality. So I've tried to sort of calm all that stuff down and not talk about it too much. Very briefly, I suppose, though, um, I had a very privileged upbringing. I was born in London. I went to top London private schools. A lot of the people I went to school with were government ministers' children, actors' children, you know that sort of stuff. My mother was a very successful journalist and for a period in the early 1960s was the editor of Vogue. And uh, my father worked for Shell and uh, on the marketing side at Shell. So I had a pretty privileged um, and, and very nice, you know, a very warm, loving. I was an only child uh, born to 
parents who had me fairly late. Um, so I had a nice childhood. I wasn't very good at school, so I didn't like that very much. Find it, I found school difficult. What, why do you think is that? And by the way, I, I failed 10th grade, um, so I greatly <laughs> sympathize. Well, I, was due, I went to a school called Westminster Under School and, and was due to, because I was a London kid and my, both my parents worked, uh, well, I was due to be a weekly boarder at Westminster School and I failed to get in. Um, I think I had what would today be called pretty high levels of ADHD. And, and I think I probably had a level of dyslexia. You know, I've sort of, as, as time has gone by, I'm, I mean, I'm clearly, I, I would, far from saying I'm, I'm, I'm the brightest person I know, but I'm not stupid. But school was a real struggle for me. But the more I grew up and the more I was able to do the things that I sort of had some affinity with, uh, you know, so I got better A-levels than I got O-levels and I got a better degree than I got A-levels. But the great thing in my life, really, was going to work, where I suddenly realized that the skills that I had were actually incredibly well-suited to what I was going to spend the rest of my life doing. If you had to choose between being good, good at school or good at work, I think on the basis that you do one for 10 years or, or however, you know, and you do the other for 40, you'd probably choose being good at work. And I certainly would. No, of course. Um, just before we go into work, what values do you think did your parents instill into you? And like, kind of what was the takeaway, I guess, when you went to, to work? How were you formed? What, what kind of did you take from your parents, from your school with you? Because I wasn't good at school, it would, you know, that was, that, that, that's difficult. Uh, clearly, you only realize this once you're a parent. But the most difficult thing in life is coping with your children and difficulties. Uh, you know, it hurts you more than anything. And so my mother, in particular, would say, just do your best, darling. As long as you do your best, I can't ask for any more. And that actually is the core value that I believe in increasingly, actually, as I get older. And today, the business that I'm in charge of, I run it on the basis that what we do is each and every one of us tries to do our best. And if we do that, and we do that every day, uh, we will be a remarkable business. It's a very powerful point. So you joined Tesco in 1982. Can you just describe how Tesco felt and how big was it back then compared to today? <laughs> just to paint a picture oh, it was, a bit it more. Was big business. I mean, I've been at Unilever for three years before I joined Tesco. Mm -hmm. And I was a Unilever uh, management trainee. And I worked for the Walls Meat Company, who were hardly the jewel in Unilever's crown. But nevertheless, I sort of had my Unilever training and went on the Unilever management development courses and stuff like that. Tesco was the Walls Meat Company's biggest customer by a mile. 
I, I ended up at a very young age, somebody left and they didn't know quite what to do and sort of it fell in my lap almost. I ended up uh, within my sort of 18 months running the largest um, product category, sausages, in the business. And I had about a 30% market share. We then helped with a number of other people's people Tesco to go private label in that fresh food area, that fresh food category. Mm. And in one, in those days, for the people who have been around in the marketing world for long enough, there used to be a thing called Atwood, which was the uh, home reporting diary. My Atwood market share halved in a month. Wow. And I thought, bugger this for a game. The soldiers, <laughs> you know, this is, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. So I thought about, well, how am I going to get into Tesco then? And you know, bizarrely, I was flicking through an old copy of a marketing magazine, and there was an ad right at the back to join Tesco as a product manager. So I applied, went for the first interview, which was one of the most unpleasant experiences of my life. <laughs> um, just because it was, they were very, very tough. These guys, Jesus. And then I went for my second interview, which was definitely the most unpleasant experience of my life, where I had an interview <laughs> with Terry Lee. And um, part of the problem was, and I've talked a little bit about my background, that you know, this was the kid who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and he talked a good game, but was he actually, you know, was he actually up for the fight? And Terry probed that fairly hard from 360 degrees with me battling away. But anyhow, good enough, got in, you know? Um, but it was, it, it, it felt like a big business. I mean, it was a big business, but it was um, <laughs> nothing like as big as the business that uh, it ended up being 30 odd years later. Mm. Very, very tough school. You know, basically run by people, many of whom had left school at 16. There was one graduate on the board, um, most of the people that ran the business had left school at 16 or even 15 probably because, you know, the era and had come through some sort of craft skill. So they were butchers or bakers or candlestick makers. They'd come through some sort of craft skill and they were just more hardworking, tougher, more determined, sometimes more charismatic, definitely more effective, often better bulliers. And, you know, and they had got through. So you needed to be fairly quick on your feet and make sure that you, they felt you were adding value to what they were trying to do. When they did, they were actually delighted to have sort of sharp young men who had a slightly different way of looking at the world who could make them look better and do better. Tesco was one of those businesses, and you, 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 you have experience of this, which is also an issue. Some, some businesses are like this, and some people are like this, that everybody starts out being a goose, but when you get close to them, you turn into swans, and, and they're terribly protective of their swans. Tesco was very like that. You were a goose, and they chased you, and they set dogs on you, and they beat you up, and they really, really tested you. But once you came those, through those tests, you became a prized swan. You know, I got a couple of good sponsors, uh, a couple of good mentors. I was lucky I got through. Um, but it was tough. It was, it was a hard school. And, I mean, you stayed for a very long time. You must have enjoyed kind of, you know, the rush, the excitement. What were kind of the, the benefits in the early days? 
Well, in the early days, we were convincing people who ran the business. You know, but my, my career basically breaks into sort of two halves. The first half was with increasing authority, convincing people that there was a different and a better way of running this business. And then the second half was we got the train set and we actually ran it. So the first half was sort of about, in a way, an, an internal battle to make our way of doing things perceived to be the right way of running the business. And then the second half of the career was about taking that onto the world stage and seeing whether we could create a global retail brand. And just, just spend a bit more time on describing our way. Well, that too changed. Uh, the business started out being, it, it, was, it, it was pieced together by M&A. So you had different people from different backgrounds. None of the shops were the same. They were different sizes. They were different shapes. And so the way that you got around that problem was you basically had a pretty decentralized operating model and the store manager was absolutely key. And the store manager decided what they sold. They bought most of it from Tesco Wholesale, but not all. They decided what they sold. They negotiated their own deals, their own discounts. They negotiated their own promotions. They decided to some extent what price they sold at. Because the one thing that you were guaranteed to get fired for was if you had shrinkage and stock loss. What they were allowed to do, or they weren't really allowed to do, but it came customer practice that you did do, was on the basis that you were always going to get stolen from and they were always going to be in these very early stages, you know, admin errors that meant that there was some stock shrinkage. Mm -hmm. But what they did was they used to do what was called buncing. And that was basically, you, you would sell at a higher price than was in the price list. Wow. So you would make some stock profit. And the good managers, you know, they ran this like their business and they knew not to go mad because they'd get caught out and they'd get into big trouble. But they did enough buncing that they never had a stock loss. They turned a bit of a stock profit, but they did pretty much exactly what they wanted. And, and of course, their bosses were very good at that and their bosses were very, very good at that. So you had this very powerful very entrepreneurial uh, management hierarchy. And basically, what you needed to do in order to get control of the brand, you needed to get control of what the brand looked like in each of its shops. And in order to do that, you needed to centralize. So basically, the first period was about centralizing the operation, centralizing the ranges, developing own brand, developing systems, one price list, one set of promotions, one distribution system, building an operating model for a business that was at that stage 12% of the UK grocery market. So it wasn't a small business. But largely, I started out in marketing. So my job at the very beginning was range control. What range should a 10,000 square foot store stock? And what should the planograms look like? And, where, and that, was what, that, was where, that was what we started out doing. We then built the management information system to do that. There was then a restructure where marketing and buying was merged. And I then started running uh, the, the, one of the big, the, the big prepared foods, fresh food category, the start of ready meals, sandwiches, things like that. And I ran that category, um, a, a sort of a merged buying and marketing job. 
just sort of finishing off on that question about, you know, the, the first half then, for the first, call it 10 years, was actually about benchmarking. Sainsbury's and Marks and Spencer's were much better businesses than Tesco. And so we didn't need to look very far to learn. And, you know, we had this benchmarking policy that said our, our products need to be as good as the brand leader. We did an awful lot of kitchen testing and market research testing to demonstrate that. And we built the Tesco brand and, and other things. Then at the end of the 80s, when there was a bit of a recession and, you know, the Tesco customer, who was a quite a value-driven customer, became under, came under quite a lot of pressure. For the first time in the sort of 10 years since I'd been there, business was a bit poor. And actually, that was when I went out and went into operations around stores for a period, which was an amazing learning. And at the end of that period in 80. 92, I think, Terry was promoted to marketing director. And then he brought me back to run marketing operations from the stores working for him. And it that was where he pivoted the business from being, instead of being a business that was obsessed about competition and benchmarking, to create the customer obsession and to put the customer right at the center. And so then our job for the next four or five years was about putting the customer at the center of the business and turning Tesco into an organization that really delivered for customers. Can you just talk a bit more about that difference between customer obsession and kind of focusing on a competition, benchmarking? Da -da -da? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the business ended up, um, and, 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 you know, I, I very wittily, as I'm sure you will agree, Timo, Uh, have described Tesco as being sort of uh, obsessed with customers and paranoid about competition uh, and, and, and uh, sort of, you know, and riddled as a result, riddled with sort of various mental illnesses. Um, but um, <laughs> so I think that, to be honest, the paranoia about competition did stay with us. But what we did was we replaced the North Star for a period between... But the trouble was that when you've been successfully benchmarking for the best part of a decade, you're actually starting to lead, not follow. There's no ground to catch up anymore. In that business, in the grocery business, I don't know whether other industries work like this, but where people basically can swap between the brands with relative ease, what you, you know, the, the key hallmark of success is how much better you are this year than last year. And furthermore, you, um, what you want to do is you want to make sure that you're better at a faster rate than your competition. So the best of all worlds is where you're getting better in a year and actually one, one or more of your competitors are getting worse. And if you can get that going on, then you really can clean up in terms of volume growth. The big thing was about putting the customer at the center of organi the organization. We created a thing called customer panels where everybody from the board downwards would go out, 15 customers would be invited to come and talk about shopping in the Kensington Tesco and what they liked about it and what they didn't like about it. And The manager would, would run the session. Some of his staff would be there. He'd have some support from people from the office. And basically what you end to do from that was you ended up with, with three lists. 
you ended up a list with a list of things that the store manager could fix. There's too much litter, there's queues on a Friday, whatever. You ended up with a list that the business could fix. There's a blind spot in the car park. The fridges leak and put water on the floor, you know, whatever. And then there were some key strategic issues like you're too expensive, your meat's tough, whatever, that needed to go away and be worked on. And we tried to create these, these three lists. But the, the important part about it was that this was no longer moderated research in books. This was hearing it straight from the customer. It's terribly symbolic. And they knew that Terry went to them and that I went to them and that other members of the main board went, to, you know, and, and it was a really important thing. And we also did an awful lot of research to create the first of what became the customer plan. So basically what a business would call our strategic plan or our trading plan, we very deliberately called our customer plan. And Terry and I together wrote this plan in 92, I guess, which I think <laughs> shows how naive we were. Had about 70 different elements in it of all the things that we were established from the research that we did where we were less good than Sainsbury or less good than Asda or less good than Marks and Spencer's or whatever and consumers wanted us to do better. And we set about focusing the business on those. But what we did was we pulled out and picked some really big ones, which were like value, the value range, the finest range, club card, express, you know, some really, really big things, which to be honest, a lot of them became the growth drivers for the next decade or more. Uh, came out of that process. And uh, one in front queuing uh, was another one. So if there was ever more in front of one person, more than one person in front of you, we'd open another checkout. And the other thing that we did at that time was we spent serious sums of money. So I tested Clubcard for over a year. And the main argument with Club Card, because it became pretty clear that it was pretty popular, and that actually it was a very it was a very successful promotion before you got to the data and started worrying about the data. But the argument was it's a zero sum game, that everybody once we, we go, everybody will go, and so that was what was holding it back. And I tried and I pushed and I, and I'd, I'd had one before, which was one in front queuing. So, um, but. Uh, the, the, the thing about Club Card was it was about a hundred million pound investment at a time when Tesco was making 500 million net. Wow. That we'd already done one in front, which was to shorten the queues. That was a 65, 70 million pound investment. So we were persuading these guys is just before they left and retired and we took over, we were persuading them to make really big bets. You know, I mean, they, I, I'm not sure if 100 out of 500 is, is betting, the, betting the ranch, but it was certainly mortgaging some of the fields. You know, it was a big deal. And so, you, you know, when you go back and you say, well, why was Tesco successful? One of the reasons why it was successful was because it put, it put its money where its mouth was. It, you know, it did, we did make a difference in terms of the amounts of money we were prepared to invest. 
I mean, um, what really stands out to me is is um, how surprisingly similar some of your and Tesco's philosophies are to what we are actually doing, which I didn't appreciate before. But I mean, we have a you know super customer centric approach. In addition to the financial budget, we have kind of customer targets, and the main strategy document is kind of how do we create more value for the customer. Obviously, completely different businesses. But actually, the, the leadership philosophy is very similar in that sense. To what extent did you link senior compensation um, to customer targets? I mean, obviously, I know your business reasonably well. Uh, I, I, think they, I think you're right. There are similarities. It's one of the reasons I like Gusto so much. We operated... I know you like a good book, Timo. Have you Love read No Filter? Uh, no, but I will put it on the list immediately. Thank you. No Filter is a book by a woman called Sarah Fryer, and it's about the development of Instagram, which, of course, gets to a certain size and then gets bought by Facebook. So it's about the growth of Instagram within Facebook. The reason I recommend it is it is very interesting on this particular subject, which is that, you know, it can't, caricaturing it, you've got Facebook, the absolutely data-driven, growth, KPI-driven, growth-centric, remorseless entity, and you've got Instagram who are interested in creating a place that people like to hang out and they're more interested in the vibe that they create than the metrics and as i say that's a cartoon of it but if you if you take that cartoon now uh, clearly facebook is a place that people want to hang out otherwise it wouldn't have got to 2.2 billion users or whatever it's got to but the the, the interesting thing i think for us all is how we balance this and we used, I mean, it was no great innovation. We used the thing called, called the balanced scorecard, but actually uh, we, we changed it slightly and we called it a steering wheel. And the idea was that we had this thing that, that, you, that in, you know, you could, you could turn and you could steer and you could guide, and it had thraw, um, four quadrants. The customer, sorry, you're now getting dogs and doorbell but such is the Zoom life. Um, you, you, you had fought with the, the customer, the operations, so the people, actually were well, the operations, the operating model, then the people, and then the finance. And what we tried to do, and clearly at the end of the day, a business like Tesco is judged by the numbers, let's be honest. But what we tried to do was to make sure that we were in a world where the customer, the operating model, and our people had a voice, and it wasn't just all about the numbers. Because the trouble, I think, with businesses is if the customer and the people particularly, I mean, if you think about it, the operating model should be a servant of the staff and the consumer. Mm. So if you link all of them together, if they get ignored for too long on the basis of the numbers, actually the thing starts to implode. You can get away for it, with it for a while. In fact, I think if you're a good business, I think you may be able to get away with it for five years or so. 
um, maybe even a decade, but ultimately you will not get away with it. Ultimately, you'll have a problem on the human level with the people that work for you and the, the, the consumers that trade with you and buy from you. So we created, so the, the, the compensation was based around the steering wheel, but I would be disingenuous if to say to, it wasn't to a large extent numbers-based. The other thing I think which is interesting about businesses, and you're less in this place with Gusto because you, know, you have created the DNA of the business from day zero, um, or grown the DNA of the business, although some of it will have grown sort of in spite of you and perhaps not quite in the way that you thought it would and stuff like that. But, you know, this is a business that a new management team is coming into. And I've done this several times now. When you go into a business that already exists and you say, you know, what are the values of this business? What do we want to do? What do we want to achieve? We want to be customer-centric. We want to be staff-centric. These are sort of values that, if you like, I believe are the best way of running a business. And I would be sort of trying to encourage a management team to adopt and take part in. The other really important thing that you have to do is you have to spot the core bits of DNA. And there were two core bits of DNA in Tesco. One was you hit your numbers. And I talked a little bit about that earlier on and making sure you didn't have a bad stock result because you lost your job. So it was bred into the organization, into the very fabric of the organization. So, it, you know, you hit your, your numbers. And the other thing was you make stuff happen. You get stuff done. Because, and, and I think that's a very retail way of looking at the world, which is, you know, if you've got no bread on your shelf and every customer that goes past the bread aisle says, oh, Mr. Manager, you've got no bloody bread, you run around and you get some bread because they're shouting at you and it's the, it's the easiest thing to do. You know, what, you, what a very few people do and they don't last very long in retail is they go and lock themselves in their office and hope it goes away. So those were sort of core pieces of Tesco DNA. And interestingly, Eagle Eye, where I am now, you know, and, and, and I think we are a very values uh, uh, led organization but one of the absolute core founding values of eagle eye is you make shit happen and it was interesting to watch all the people who joined as kids who were still in the business when i came in when the business was sort of eight seven eight years old they would do as it's not that they weren't thinkers necessarily but they would do as they made stuff happening the founder built the business on the basis you do things and you make things happen. It's trying to understand those two things when you look at any organization and its values. What is the core DNA and where do you aspire to be and how do you, how do you marry those two things together? And so on those topics, I love... You didn't ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I said I'm conscious you didn't ask me that question, but somehow no, I'm I greatly enjoyed it. it. Um, I, I would love to hear, because that's really relevant, how you then spearheaded Tesco's uh, expansion into the US and became fresh and easy CEO. And I mean, that's been a massive kind of scaling journey for you. Can you share some of those stories? Fresh and easy was a very interesting concept. Simplified, you know, if you've ever shopped in a, an American supermarket, they'll have 12 different Caesar dressings and 150 different salad dressings. 
you know, if, if you look at what Aldi had done and to some extent what M&S had done, actually one or two, two really good season trips, but make sure it's really, you know, that, that was, there was a, a lot of that thinking behind it. The, the people who we really admired in the US were Whole Foods. I think if you have ever tried to run a retail operation and you look at what they do with their counters and their food to go and their commissary and their service bars and all that, that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Where we had invested a lot of time in the UK was in actually being able to do a lot of that stuff in a factory. So the, the, the theory was that we can offer better fresh foods than any of the competition. And because we're doing it in a factory, we can get scale advantage, we can get value advantage. So we can offer better gear at cheaper prices. So that was where the research was all done and they went out. I, wasn't, I was only involved in the project as a main board director. And I went out for the final validation and they built a store in, a, in an old warehouse, sort of in, inland LA. Because the so thing was so top secret, they told the landlord that they were going to film porn movies set in a supermarket, which is why they were building this. <laughs> uh, and um, when we went out, I wasn't there at the time, but they went, when they went out to get all the packaging and all the food to, to um, go in this store, they had to buy, you know, they've got all these milk fridges, so they had to go and buy pots and pots and pots of milk. And uh, th so the two members of staff were walking out of a competitor's store in, in L.A. with two carts, I think actually three carts full of milk, a guy and a girl. <laughs> and the cashier looked at them <laughs> slightly strangely. And uh, the guy who was there said, yeah, yeah, we run a cafe. Our cows died. Um, so <laughs> it, it was, there was sort of all this, it was, it was, it was an amazing time and they felt this amazing thing. And I went out right at the end as part of the validation process. Had they done good work? Was what they were offering, uh, you know, going to be competitive and so on and so forth. How big did it then become and kind of what worked, what didn't work? But at this point, it was a, a, a mock store. So I came back and I said to Terry, I, I think it's going to be good. And I spoke to my wife and I said, should we put our hat in the ring to go to L.A.? And uh, she said, yeah, go on then. And so I said to Terry, by the way, I know you want somebody to run it. I'll go and run it for you. Which well, she didn't expect me to do, I don't think. I don't know whether he would have ever asked me, but, but anyhow, um, I, I don't think he would have expected me to do. So I went to run it. We then had about 18 months where what we were doing was building the ranges, finding the sites, building the stores, getting everything ready for launch. It was an amazing 18 months. Just incredible. Developing an entire product range, opening a factory, uh, developing all the recipes. I mean, all stuff that you're used to, Timo, but of course, ending up with finished products, you know, and uh, the extraordinary thing about a retail business is whether you've got one store or a thousand stores, you sort of have to have everything ready to go. 
So we sort of scaled it up and we opened uh, and off we went. And it was unbelievably popular. I, 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 I mean, I know you're um, a fan of MPS. When it opened, I think a investor did an NPS study on it. And, and I, I think we, we scored something like 85% NPS for the, which for wow. a shop. Um, yeah, it's so unheard it, of, yeah. But it never scaled. We, we never got to that tipping point. We weren't American enough to start with. You know, we went through our first holiday and uh, way, we just didn't have enough cinnamon <laughs> in, in the products. <laughs> If, if you go into an American store in the run-up to holidays, every, the whole store smells of cinnamon. We just had to learn all that stuff. So there, there was improving the product range and there was doing all those things. The truth is, I think that ultimately it could have worked. Where, it could have worked and would have worked. But one of the things that we did, I think, was we, you know, because Tesco is such a big business, and this is a problem that big businesses have, is... It's got to be serious or it doesn't move the dial. So we built a, an infrastructure for a very large number of stores. And then we made, we had, we opened 300 stores. We got to a billion of sales in about two and a half years, three years. And we had another 200 stores in the pipeline. But what we realized was actually we got the wrong shop. We'd got a 10,000 square foot shop. You know, when the thing didn't go as well as we had hoped it would, we scaled that 10,000 square foot store back and and brought out a a sort of express format using our learnings from express, which was about 4,000 square feet, I think, three or 4,000 square feet. And actually it, took about 60 or 70% of the money, and some of them took 100% of the money of the bigger shop. So what we realized was that actually in the consumer's minds, a 10,000 square foot version of a a fresh and easy was a small supermarket with a a bit less choice, with a lot less choice. A 3,000 square foot fresh and easy was a miracle. But unfortunately, we discovered that when we got 300 stores open, of which 280 were the the bigger ones. And then the great financial crisis happened. Well, actually, we'd been trading. We opened the day Morgan Stanley announced it had lost 2 billion. So we opened at an unbelievably bad time. And progressively, that created more and more pressure on the world which meant that Tesco was having to fight in every market to keep the business going, which, by the way, the business did remarkably well. But it meant that, that the amount of firepower and effort that we got left to support Fresh and Easy just ran out. And so they decided to, uh, to sell it. And it was, it was then that I left. And it was sad, really. I mean, it, it was because I, I took this view that if you, you know, the U.S. didn't need more supermarkets. We needed to be a really good neighbor, and we were fresh and easy, the neighborhood market. And what did being a really good neighbor mean? Well, it meant no colors, no flavors, no additives, no preservatives, 
um, to disrupt the, the neighborhood as little as possible. So we were very careful when the trucks delivered so it wasn't around school times and it would, they'd never wake anybody up and stuff like that. We had the largest solar panel roof in California on top of the, the factory and distribution center. Uh, we opened stores in places like Compton and, and Hunter's Point, which are places where stores hadn't been opened. There wasn't a new, mm. I, I don't know whether you've heard of this, but the U.S. has places which they call food deserts, mm. which is the really, really impoverished parts of the U.S. where they have those really big social problems. Part of the issue is you can't buy a fresh apple even if you want to. You have to leave your neighborhood to buy a fresh apple, fresh bread, whatever, whatever. So we spoke to all the mayors in the places, and we and we we put about ten stores into these places where nobody had opened for ten, twenty. In Compton, where we opened, the, the last grocery store now had been destroyed in the riots. So it it was a lovely business, but it just didn't work, unfortunately. When you've had a career where you have been pretty much successful for your entire career. Uh, you know, pretty much what you touch turns to gold. And then getting towards the sort of middle end of that career, you have a really big failure. My God, that doesn't half wake you up and make you think about life and think about what matters. And so, so, so I think it was an unbelievably broadening experience. And I think um, I, I'm pretty sure I'm a better manager as about, about as a result of it, and probably a more tolerable human being as well. But that would be for others to judge. It's a very, very powerful point you're making. Um, and I think you then left Tesco and you dabbled into private equity for a bit. And I'm quite fascinated to just hear briefly how you found, you know, the very successful kind of scaling of Tesco you know, in a corporate environment to then being in a private equity house, which I think was focused on restructuring. Culturally, it couldn't be more different. I think that's true. I was a bit naive, to be honest. Um, well, somewhere somewhere between a bit and very naive. But you're right. I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head, which is that, you know, and, and frankly, my strengths are around brand building and culture creation and, and, and growth, they are not really a, a sort of around restructuring and, and, and operating model. So it, it was just wasn't a very good fit. They thought I wasn't a very good fit, and I, and, and I thought they weren't a very good fit. So, you know, so it's business that's done well, my goodness. So I left there, did a bit of plural, ended up being one of the things I did in going plural was I ended up being chairman of, the, of a business called Eagle Eye. Uh, in which Terry Leahy was an investor. And, you know, the absolute headline of what Eagle Eye enables is it enables you to do club card type work, database type work, customer work, but in a digital environment rather than an analog environment. So Terry had become an investor a few years before, asked me if I was interested in sharing it. And then when I was chairing it, the board asked me if I would, uh, or started trying to persuade me to replace the CEO. And I said, I tell you what, instead of replacing him, why don't I change jobs? And why don't I go and be the CEO rather than the chairman? And they said, are you sure you're serious? You know, it's quite a small company and so on and so forth. And I said, no, I'm absolutely serious. I have a chance to look at it. So that's what I did. 
And I've been doing that, I suppose, for about the last four years, and I love it. And you also joined the Gusto board um, I did as indeed. our first love ever independent too, director. It's been fantastic, Tim, to have you. Why Gusto? Well, one of the things that I say to you is don't underestimate the quality of the idea that you have as a business and the attractiveness and the fit of that idea. One of the great sadnesses about Fresh and Easy was that it was in many ways a model business. And if it had been very successful, people would have been more thoughtful about the, their environmental impact. They'd been more thoughtful about how they served consumers. And they would have certainly been more thoughtful about how they recruited and managed their staff, all of which would have been incredibly good for society. So I, I honestly believe that it was a very well-run and a very attractive business. The trouble is the core idea just wasn't good enough. It wasn't different enough. What you've got with, it, with, with your business uh, is Gusto is a brilliantly good idea. People want to be able to cook. Uh, they want to be able to create. And what you do is you make it easy for them to do it well. And they get a tremendous feeling of satisfaction out of that, much more satisfaction than they do for popping an M&S or a Tesco ready meal in a microwave. I think it's really tapped into something that people want to do. One of the reasons that, that people, you know, get fed up with cooking is because they only cook the same four things And the reason, it's not that they're not capable of cooking more things. They just don't have the headspace to have the larder properly stocked with the smoked turmeric and all the other things that you serve up amazingly in your recipe boxes, which means that food tastes different. All their food tastes the same. And everybody just gets a bit, a bit bored and a bit fed up with it. And you've completely unlocked that. So I think it's a brilliant idea. And then I think it is a very well-run business. Um, and I think that the the work that you have done on the data side and on the technology side is absolutely right. I think that you are building the sort of business that modern businesses will be. You know, modern businesses will be data-centric. They will be digitally focused. They, they may end up producing real things rather than digital things, But up until the point at which human beings touch real things, they will be very like digital businesses. Because otherwise, these digital guys will just run rings around the rest of us. So I think you've done very well there. And of course, you are uh, enjoying the challenges of actually building what will ultimately be your biggest moat is the factories to put the stuff out the door. And, it, and the interesting thing about that is that although there's huge technology and stuff, actually the core skills are very old-fashioned skills about right people, right motivation, you know, right management, right reward, right incentivization, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a fascinating business. And, um, and the other thing is, you know, um, 
sort of as we come, I guess, to the end of, of our time chatting, that you're an impressive guy and it was good to have the opportunity to work with you. You're incredibly kind, um, Tim, and it's been a huge pleasure working with you and, and having you on the podcast today. Just as a final question, in a nutshell, what do you think makes a good CEO and leader? Empathy. Mm. Um, empathy for consumers and empathy for staff, frankly. And, and I think the understanding that in human beings favorite subject is themselves <laughs> so talk to them about themselves be interested in them and how involvement in gusto makes their lives better 